0: everyone. This is Hannah, this is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. Fair warning, I literally just woke up maybe, I don't know, an hour ago and I just sneezed a bunch. So I sound pretty masculine right now. Um, We'll see if it clears up along the way. But today I'm going to be telling you about the murder of Buddy Musso. I read about this story a while ago and wanted to cover it. I feel like I literally say that almost on every episode. Um, but it was just kind of convoluted and chaotic. It's entwined with a bunch of people with a lot of fucked up familial shit, and I just thought it was kind of just too much at the time. But I recently revisited it and remembered how terrible it was, so I figured everyone else needed to know how crazy this murder was too. This involves the torture and murder of, I guess, a technically you would categorize him as a disabled person, um, mental developmental um, disability. So there is your warning. It's a sad one. I would say this is the more modern day male equivalent to Sylvia Likens. Definitely, probably, most likely not as bad as Sylvia, um, if you know, you know. Um, But it's still, you know, similar vibes, I guess. So picture it, Houston, Texas, 1998. But before we get there, let's talk about a crazy and demented woman, Suzanne Basso. Suzanne was originally born as Suzanne Margaret Burns on May 15th, 1954, and grew up in Schenectady, New York with her parents, Florence Garrow and John Burns, and seven other siblings. She was the youngest of the three girls in the family. Fun fact, Suzanne's mom, Florence, was the elder sister of spree killer and rapist Robert Garrow. I had never heard of him before. But uh, he's a good one. After committing several rapes, Robert went on a 18-day killing spree, stabbing four people to death before being apprehended. And he was later shot while trying to escape prison. So, yeah, this guy was fucked. He was into bestiality, and he would masturbate using milking machines. Um, Yeah, again, if I had to know, then you had to know. Like, the milking machines they put on, like, cows. Do you know what I'm saying? Like that, Like, suction cup around an udder. Like, I just... I don't know how he's still intact, but who cares? Similarly to her uncle, Suzanne was physically and sexually abused as a child. Great start. One story among the family was that when Florence caught Suzanne with a pack of cigarettes, instead of making her smoke one, like that's kind of the usual you know, routine, she actually made her eat them. So I honestly kind of feel like that was just parenting and disciplining in the 1960s. I'm not too surprised by that one. But regardless, the abuse obviously, you know, took a toll on Suzanne, and she began to act out as a way to cope with her trauma, and as a result, she would spend time at a Catholic reform school in Albany, New York. I'm sure that went great. However, Suzanne actually managed to complete high school and married a Marine named James Peake in the early 1970s. Um a Marine in the seventies, uh, immediately yikes. Uh, Suzanne and James had two children together, a daughter, Christiana. I think that is how you say it. The spelling is a bit unique. I don't think it's Christiana or Chris. I think it's Christiana. Let's just put it that way. Uh, she was born in 1973 and then she had a son, James Jr. Uh, he was born in 1974. So the family moves. They move several times, bouncing back and forth from North Carolina to Houston. Uh, It wasn't explicitly stated, but I'm assuming it was due to James Sr.'s um, military postings. In addition to an inconsistent home life, Christiana remembers her parents' marriage being plagued by what she called sexual deviance. Suzanne was evidently unfaithful and had many sexual partners outside of her marriage to James but her husband tolerated the behavior. Christiana remembers waiting with her father in a bedroom or on the porch while her mother finished having sex with various men in their home. Suzanne would sometimes even take her young children on sexual rendezvous, making them wait in the man's kitchen or living room until they were done. Suzanne wasn't the only one to blame, though. The reason why James was most likely more than accommodating for Suzanne's infidelities was because James Peake enjoyed abusing children. He was arrested in 1982 for molesting Christiana and was convicted of taking indecent liberties with a child. Christiana, now married and a mother to her own children, said sexual and physical abuse were just part of a lifelong pattern. She recalled one time when her mother forced she and James Jr. to undress for two maintenance men who were visiting the house, and Suzanne watched as the men fondled seven-year-old Christiana. James Jr. was beaten and abused by both Suzanne and James Sr. Luckily, both children went to foster homes during James Sr.'s imprisonment, and eventually they were sent to live with relatives. Somehow, though, in the early 1990s, James, Suzanne, and the children reunited in Houston. How, how, how? I don't know. Suzanne decided to make a fresh start by changing the family surname to O'Malley just because she fucking could, I guess. It was, um, yeah, it was time for a change. Really committing to the family's new theme. Suzanne created a new Irish American persona and decorated her house with Kelly green paint, shamrocks and leprechauns. A man named Richard Charlesworth would end up living in the O'Malley home and remembered everything being green. Richard had accepted their offer of a bed after he had lost his job, but the arrangement didn't last long. He recalled it was like living with the Adams family, and that they would literally just pick up anyone off of the street. The family, he remembers, was odd in other ways as well. And I think the word odd uh, barely covers it. First and foremost, Suzanne and James Jr., her son, had a sexual relationship. Despite having a job as a security guard at an apartment complex, Suzanne would also sometimes force James Jr. to shoplift or beg for money on street corners. Suzanne also made him eat off of the floor, and she often locked him up in the house during the day, nailing the windows shut so he wouldn't leave. James Jr. complained to authorities when he was 17, but the county social services investigation went nowhere. In 1993, Suzanne became romantically involved with a New Jersey man named Carmine Basso, who owned a company called Latin Security and Investigations Corporation. Carmine moved into Suzanne's home despite her never divorcing her husband James. The arrangement didn't last long, though, and James Peake eventually moved to another residence in Houston. Despite being unable to marry Carmine Basso because, again, she never formally divorced James— Suzanne still changed her surname to Basso and began referring to Carmine as her husband. So just to recap, she's gone from Burns to Peake to O'Malley to Basso. The couple would eventually release an engagement announcement in the Houston Chronicle in October of 1995 the obnoxious publication read that the bride-to-be was Suzanne, Margaret, Anne, Cassandra, Lynn, Teresa, Marie, Mary, Veronica, Sue, Burns Stan, Lynn, I think that might be the biggest forensic file name of all time. That's just, it's a, it's a, a sentence of lies, pure fake names. The announcement said she was heiress to a Nova Scotia oil fortune fortune. Who am I? Um, Fortune or I don't know, whatever. Additionally, it said that she had been educated at fine schools abroad and had been an accomplished gymnast, a former nun and a self. I can't even a selfless volunteer on behalf of unfortunate girls in upstate New York. How do you, how are you a gymnast and a nun? I don't think that's allowed. Her equally impressive fiance, Carmine Joseph John Basso, he was just a Vietnam War hero who had been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, probably not. That's a big, big, big question. The message continued to describe the exceptional lives of the charmed people. And unsurprisingly, the Chronicle was never paid the $1,400 owed for running the engagement announcement. How embarrassing. A couple of years later, in 1997, Suzanne planned a trip to New Jersey, apparently to visit Carmine's family. But during the trip, she would meet her next victim at a church bazaar, Louis Charles, aka Buddy Musso. Strangely enough, Carmine Basso turned up dead around the time of this New Jersey trip. Suzanne claims she was most certainly in New Jersey at the time, although friends... I mean, she doesn't even have any friends, but okay. Um, yeah, friends, air quote, friends said that she was actually in Houston when Carmine died. Despite this detail and confirmation one way or the other being easily attainable, speculation surrounding Carmine's death has been put forward with the possibility that Suzanne was involved in some capacity, but just like check and see if she got on the plane in New Jersey. You know what I mean? I, it's not that hard. Carmine Basso was found dead in the office of his security firm. An autopsy indicated a natural death caused by erosive esophagitis, a severe form of acid reflux that was complicated by malnourishment. I guess I could only assume that she might've been involved due to the malnourishment because we see that that comes into play later with Buddy, but I don't know. It would be a, you know, a juicy add to her long list of victims, but I think he was just in poor health. Carmine's untimely death had two effects. It removed Suzanne Basso's primary source of income, and it cleared a place in her life for Buddy Musso. Within months, Buddy was making plans to move to Texas to live with Suzanne. Buddy's friends were happy for him, but there were concerns. You see, Buddy was mentally handicapped and with a diminished intellectual capacity that some gauged as modest as that of an eight-year-old. On the other hand, why shouldn't he be allowed to fall in love? he had already done it once before, Buddy had been married as a young man, but his wife died of cancer in 1980, two years after giving birth to their son, Tony. It was closing in on 18 years of being alone, and Buddy was ecstatic to have finally found companionship and romance again. So, using his most recent social security check, Buddy bought a cheap engagement ring and a new Western style outfit for the trip. He bid his friends goodbye and told them to prepare for a big wedding reception at the Cliffside Park Legion Hall when he would return to New Jersey with Suzanne. On June 14, 1998, 60-year-old Buddy Musso boarded a Greyhound bus wearing pointy-toed cowboy boots, a bandana, and a new cowboy hat. He was officially leaving his home at the assisted living community in New Jersey to join his new girlfriend at her home in Jacinto City. A little over 10 weeks later, Buddy Musso would be found dead in a ditch in Galena Park. A seven-page autopsy report contained a shocking catalog of cuts, mutilations, and fractures, including a broken nose, black eyes, 17 lacerations on his head, and a bone fracture in his neck. The examination found around 30 cuts and cigarette burns on Buddy's back, as well as bruises to his chest, abdomen, genitals, arms, legs, hands, and feet. His skull was fractured, and he had 14 broken ribs and two dislocated vertebrae. The likely cause of death was a final fatal blow to his head, most likely from a baseball bat or a 2 by 4 The medical examiner in charge of Buddy's case believed the injuries were inflicted over a period of days, perhaps even weeks, while he was alive. A morbidly obese woman walked into a Houston police station a few hours after Buddy's body was found. She gave her name as Sue Basso, and she reported that Buddy Musso, the man who lived with her, had turned up missing. At the time, Suzanne lived in suburban Jacinto City in a dumpy house filled with a collection of miscellaneous animals and humans. One inhabitant was her 24-year-old son, James O'Malley. He lived a fantasy life as a special operations soldier. Um, yeah. He wore military regalia day and night, including in bed. So just like full camo gear and combat boots 24-7, okay? Suzanne had a pet nickname for him, which was Bozo the fucking clown. Um, this story is literal nightmare fuel. Oh my gosh. Shockingly, this is crazy to me. Police led Suzanne and James to the Galena Park ditch so that they could confirm that the dead man was the same as their supposed missing missing friend. Like, what if it wasn't? That's just the weirdest idea and procedure I've ever heard of. Like, hey, let's just go check out this dead body still at the scene of the crime, Not in, you know, the morgue or anything. Maybe it's him. If it's not, then you just got to see a random dead guy for free. That's just strange. I guess, whatever. A cop would later say that Suzanne broke out in fake hysteria on seeing Buddy dead while James was expressionless. Robert Pruitt, Galena Park's assistant police chief, would later say that the lack of reaction from James gave him a gut feeling that James knew what was going on even before they got there. Officers took James aside and asked whether he had any ideas about what might have happened to Buddy Musso. Yeah, James replied, we killed him. Very quickly, police would learn that the we would prove to include Suzanne James, Suzanne's friend, 55-year-old Bernice Ahrens, Bernice's 25-year-old son, Craig Ahrens, Bernice's 22-year-old daughter, Hope Ahrens, and Hope Ahrens' fiance, 28-year-old Terrence Singleton. James O'Malley helpfully explained that the fatal beating had taken place at Bernice's apartment in Houston. Buddy had been forced to kneel on a child's play mat for several days, apparently after accidentally breaking a Mickey Mouse Disney figurine. He was beaten, stomped, burned with cigarettes, and cleaned with a wire brush. He was then dumped into a bathtub filled with bleach and pine-scented kitchen cleaner, after which his corpse was then redressed and dumped in Galena Park. James and other eyewitnesses would reveal that Buddy lived a life of servitude, not love and romance with Suzanne. When he would carry in groceries and take out the trash, neighbors could see that he was bloodied and bruised. James led police to a trash bin where they found Buddy's bloody clothing bloodstained towels, and the child's playmat, and rubber gloves. With this finding, the six suspects were officially arrested and charged with murder. On September 9th, Assistant Chief Pruitt led a team of officers serving a search warrant at Suzanne's house. The entire home was polluted with feces from a dog, a cat, and two ferrets. The tiny house was packed with stacks of plastic storage containers filled with old clothing, record albums and CDs, stereos, and television equipment. A mattress, where both Buddy and James were forced to sleep, lay on the living room floor, while only a computer was set up in another bedroom. Officers found books on Irish history and surprisingly highbrow magazines, including The New Yorker and a periodical from the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. The compact disc collection included classical works as well as Irish and pop music. Continuing with the Irish theme, the home's liquor cabinet was also well-stocked. Buddy apparently was cognizant of his fate in the final weeks of his life. In the search of the home, officers found a note Buddy had written in a pair of his pants. The note addressed to a friend back in New Jersey read, You must get son down here and get me out of here. I want to come back to New Jersey soon. Son meaning his son, Tony. Amidst the clutter, police found a $15,000 life insurance policy written by the Union Labor Life Insurance Company on Buddy Musso. A violent death clause boosted the benefit to $60,000. Law enforcement also found a will signed by Buddy and witnessed by Suzanne and three of her co-defendants that named her as the sole heir to Buddy's property, including the life insurance policy. A paper copy of the will was dated 1997, but police found the original document file in a computer. It had been created 12 days before the murder police found bank statements and canceled checks indicating that Buddy had been turning over his monthly social security check to Suzanne. They also found documents showing that Suzanne had applied to become payee of Buddy's government checks. Saved on the computer, investigators would also find a copy of a restraining order that barred any of Buddy's relatives from contacting him. Although all six suspects pointed fingers at one another in police statements, the other five all agreed that Suzanne Basso was the ringleader behind the murder-for-profit scheme. They were all looking to profit from anywhere from 15000 to 60000 split between six people. Wow, what a deal. Houston prosecutors decided to seek maximum prison sentences for the accomplices and a death sentence for Suzanne. Harris County Assistant Prosecutor Denise Nasser was quoted saying, there's a reason why we have a death penalty, and this is it. Texas District Judge Mary Lou Keel ruled that most of the six suspects should be tried separately. James O'Malley would go first, beginning on April 13, 1999. The trials would continue with Craig Ahrens, also in April, his mother Bernice and Terrence Singleton together in May, and Hope Ahrens in June. Suzanne would be last, with a trial scheduled to begin in July of 1999. Prosecutors Colleen Barnett and Denise Nasser had been very busy for four months, In her opening remarks at the first trial, Denise painted a vivid picture of Buddy Musso's heartbreaking hope. He wanted a wife and family more than anything in the world, she told jurors. He got on a Greyhound bus wearing cowboy boots and a hat. He was coming to Texas. James O'Malley mounted the witness stand to testify that he felt pressured by his mother to take part in the killing. "'I didn't know what else to do,' he said. "'I was scared of my mother.' James's testimony also gave jurors a glimpse into Buddy's treatment at the hands of his killers. The abuse began soon after Buddy arrived in Houston, but Suzanne escalated the torture near the end in an attempt to ensure the violent death clause of the life insurance policy. Buddy was frequently handcuffed, sometimes at home or sometimes in the backseat of the car while the group enjoyed a meal in a restaurant. I realize that part is the least harmful and kind of horrible in the grand scheme of things, but that just fucking got to me like i definitely teared up reading that for the first time because i just pictured him in the back seat helpless like not understanding what was going on or actually understanding what was going on which i don't know that might even be worse but like he truly looked like the sweetest man on the planet i have a couple pictures of him on on instagram um yeah he was a gem i don't know if that part bummed me out more than it should have i guess James said Buddy was forced to kneel on a mat and was continuously denied food and water. He cried frequently and was beaten in retaliation. Also denied access to a toilet, he wet himself and was just beaten even more. James claimed that the final beatings began because Buddy had either lied about breaking the Disney figurine or failed to obey Suzanne. James said he dunked Buddy four or five times in a bathtub filled with household cleaning products and bleach while Suzanne poured alcohol over Buddy's head while James scrubbed him bloody with a wire brush. At testimony's end, the jury quickly convicted James O'Malley of capital murder and sentenced him to life in prison. At the trial of Bernice Ahrens and her son Craig, each admitted in confessions read to the jury that they hit Buddy a time or two, but both agreed that Suzanne was the primary culprit. After the murder, Bernice Ahrens said in a statement to police, quote, Suzanne said we had to make a pact that we can't say anything about what happened. She said, if we get mad at each other, we can't say anything. End quote. The jury convicted both Bernice and Craig of murder. Bernice received 80 years and Craig received 60. At his trial, Terrence Singleton admitted that he kicked Buddy and hit him with a baseball bat. But his confession, read to jurors, tried to implicate James and Suzanne as the most highly culpable. Quote, the blows that killed him are the blows of Suzanne hitting him with the vacuum and James constantly kicking him in the back of the head. I know he didn't die from us hitting him because he had been up and responsive. End quote. Like, okay, that I just, no. Nonetheless, the jury judged Terrence Singleton equally responsible. He was convicted of capital murder and sentenced to life in prison. Hope Ahrens, who claimed she could not read or write, submitted a short note to corrections officers asking for a meal before she would agree to make a statement, which, again, that just doesn't make any sense. You can't read or write? How'd How'd you make a note? Jail officials gave her a TV dinner, which she eagerly devoured. After officers had written out the woman's statement, they asked Galena Park Police Dispatcher Tammy McCormick to read it back to Hope to make sure she agreed with every word. Hope wasn't interested in the statement. She wanted another free meal. Quote, Her statement made me nauseous and sick. She was calm, fine, like nothing was wrong. I was so upset I wanted to vomit, but all she wanted was another TV dinner. End quote. Uh, that was from Tammy McCormick, by the way. Like that of Terrence Singleton, Hope Aaron's confession blamed Suzanne Basso and James O'Malley for inflicting the deadly injuries. But she did say, quote, Buddy broke one of my Mickey Mouses and said that he wanted me and my mom to die, and I hit Buddy with a wooden bird but I didn't hit him that hard, but he told me to stop. And I stopped after I hit him twice, end quote. Okay, whatever, Hope. Hope's murder trial ended in a hung jury. I don't know how that's fucking possible, Um, but that worked to the advantage of prosecutors who dangled the possibility of a plea bargain in exchange for her testimony against Suzanne, the final defendant. Suzanne Basso shrunk by more than half while awaiting trial. She weighed 350 pounds, and she was only 5'2 at the time of her arrest. 11 months later, she weighed 140. She insisted on using a wheelchair and claimed paralysis, mental problems, and chest and stomach pain. She also said she had regressed to her childhood and spoke in a squeaky little girl voice. A court-appointed psychiatrist judged that she was faking her illness and mindset, and Judge Keel agreed at a competency hearing that Suzanne was capable of facing trial. Each day, Suzanne was wheeled into court. She appeared unkempt and she sat morosely at the defense table, sometimes scowling and sometimes appearing to not pay attention at all. Just as in other trials, the jurors heard Suzanne's confession to police. The courtroom was told how Suzanne claimed that she had only hit Buddy with a belt and tried to deflect blame on the five others. Hope Aarons would testify and obviously claim it happened differently. She took the witness stand to say that she saw Suzanne beat Buddy with her fists, a belt, and a vacuum cleaner attachment. She said Suzanne would jump up and down on Buddy as he collapsed on his punishment mat. He said Suzanne encouraged James to kick Buddy with his steel-toed combat boots that he constantly wore. It came as no surprise when the jury convicted Suzanne Basso of capital murder. Jurors then had to choose between life and death for the woman. During the penalty phase, Suzanne's own daughter, Christiana, was the prosecution's key witness. The young woman recounted the miserable childhood that I already went over. She told the jury that there was sexual abuse, mental abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse, any kind of abuse she could inflict, she did. Which I think really helped hit home, you know, the fact that Suzanne was a chronic, violent abuser to not just Buddy, but to her own children, and that she had a history of just being a piece of shit psychologist floyd jennings said of suzanne quote she's a whining complainer to whom people wish to say get away from me end quote uh yeah i like that one she's fucking disgusting however defense attorneys argued that suzanne was not a future threat to society okay um how like how, how did you get that calculation? Because she's literally been abusive to every single person in her life. So that's interesting. Regardless, jurors were unmoved. After six hours of discussion, they judged that no mitigating circumstances could lead them to vote for life in prison. And Judge Keel announced the death sentence. Suzanne slumped in her chair and wept. As she was wheeled out of court, she cried in her little girl voice, I am not guilty. In opposition to Suzanne, prosecutors deemed that justice had been served. Prosecutor Colleen Barnett said, quote, I've seen a bunch of evil in my job as a prosecutor, but she exhibits so many different demonic traits that it's hard to see her as anything but an evil-minded person. End quote. I couldn't agree more. The final loose end in the case was tied up six weeks after Suzanne's conviction when Hope Aarons pleaded guilty to murder and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Hope has since been released. Suzanne Basso lived on death row with eight other condemned women at the Mountain View unit in Gatesville. Since Texas was no longer serving last meal requests on death row, Suzanne ate a regular prison meal of baked chicken, fish, boiled eggs, carrots, and green beans, and sliced bread. Prison fish. No thanks. Uh, Suzanne refused to give a last statement, and she was executed on February 5th, 2014. According to the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, James O'Malley had been at the Hodge unit in Rusk, Texas, but I cannot find any current update on his status. Uh, Maybe he died. Uh, I don't know. I don't care. Um, Bernice Ahrens is still at the Carol Young complex in Dickinson, Texas, and she should be paroled in 2028. Craig Ahrens is at the Ferguson unit in Midway, Texas, and um, also should be paroled in 2028. And lastly, Terrence Singleton, he is also at the Ferguson unit in Midway, but should be paroled in 2038. And that is the terribly tragic murder of Louis Charles Buddy Musso. Uh, Fuck you, Suzanne Basso and company, I guess. Uh, Questions and theories? Uh, I don't really know. This case was just Oh, I had to crack my neck. Sorry. Um, this case was just so sad and fucked up in many different facets. I literally would have preferred buddy to have been split open with a chainsaw than to know that he had gone through such a terrible few months in that house being tortured and killed. I realized Suzanne was a product of abuse and so was James, but this was just fucking awful. Like, and those poor animals at that home too. I fucking hate that shit. I am 100% not phased. By or saddened by Suzanne Basso's death. I think that prosecutor Denise Nasser was right when she said that this is the reason why we have the death penalty. I think that Suzanne came from a long line of fucked up people with fucked up lives. It's, you know, it's not an excuse, but it's kind of the only thing that makes sense for something like this to happen. My heart goes out to Buddy's family and friends. Um, But yeah, this case grossed me out. And like I said, it bummed me the fuck out. That's for sure. So. Anyways, if you have a case suggestion, email me or message me on Instagram. I am going to be out of town next week, so I won't be back with episodes probably until like mid-June, but I promise I will be back with more Texas True Crime. So if anyone is listening, happy Halloween.